Um, we're continuing in our two-week study of Matthew 9:30 through 10:17. So we're looking at specifically verses 9 through 17. Or it's not Matthew, sorry, Romans. Um, <laughs> so used to going through Matthew. So we're in Romans 9:30 through 10:17. We're looking at chapter 10, 9 through 17 this morning. Uh, my name is Stephen, and my wife Nikki and I are privileged to be a part of this body and to serve alongside with you, and thankful for the opportunity to preach last week and this week, and hope that, or know that God will use his word to accomplish his purpose this morning. So before we uh, jump into that, let me just, let's just all start here, that uh, you don't have to have everything together this morning as we come and look at God's word as we come and sing, as we come together as a body. If this is your first time in church ever, or if this is your first time in months or years, or maybe you are here every week. Um, our confidence is not based on what we do. Our acceptance with God is not based on how good of a morning we had, if we read the Bible and prayed, if we treated our kids well, if we treated our spouse well, or, uh, or whatever throw in the blank there, fill in the blank. Um, it's based on what Christ has done. And so even this morning for me, I was just reminded that I don't have it all together. Um, even this past Friday, God used my wonderful wife to confront sin in my life and to show how I was being deceived and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I don't come because I have it all together, um, but I come because God's word is sufficient and he is able to work in us and among us and, and through us. So uh, I just want to start there and, and say that just rest in Christ this morning as we look at his word. May, may we all be pointed to him. May we find our joy in him. So let me pray, and then we'll review last week and jump into this week. God, you're worthy of our worship God, you don't need us, but we need you desperately. I pray that you'd help us to feel that this morning. Help me to feel that, not to depend on my own strength, but to depend on your spirit, depend on the sufficiency of your word. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves before you this morning and pray that you would do your work, God, that this morning you would redeem your people that are in darkness. Draw them to yourself. For those who have been redeemed, God, would you open eyes, open hearts to see the glory and beauty and worth of Jesus and to behold you and just to be in awe and wonder of who you are. Please guide us by your spirit. Do your work in us for you are God, and we need you desperately. We pray things in Christ's name. Amen. So just a quick recap from last week. Uh, we're looking at six truths regarding God's salvation of man. So last week we looked at three of them, and these aren't necessarily, this is not an exhaustive list of truths about God's salvation. It's just six. And last week we worked at three, and then this week we're looking at three more. So, I'll just review the ones from last week. Um, coming from chapter, going back to the beginning, um, God created man and everything. 
out of his goodness, out of his grace, in fellowship with himself. And, and man, specifically Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, rejected his glory, rejected his goodness, and sought to live for themselves. Um, they, re- they rejected worshiping God and worshiped themselves. And as a result, death came to everything. It came, separation between God and man happened. Our sins separated us from God. Death came to creation and to man. And as a result, it has come to all of us because we are born in the line of Adam and we ourselves are corrupted. We ourselves are sinful. And we ourselves have rejected God to worship ourselves. Um, and so God prophesied that a Messiah would come. And we looked at last week how Jesus has come. He is the Messiah that was prophesied to bring back restoration, to bring us back to life, to bring back fellowship and reconciliation to God between those who place their faith in him and all of creation itself one day. And so uh, we looked at, okay, what does that mean? What does this look like for salvation? And we looked at the Jews and what Paul is saying. He's writing to the church in Rome, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They had all these things going for them. They had the prophets that came to speak truth to them. Uh, they had the law. They had the covenants. Even from uh, their ancestry was the Messiah, Jesus, descended. And so they had all these things going for them. But what Paul says in 9.30 through 10.4 is that salvation comes from God through faith in Christ. And it's not based on our ability to keep the law. It destroys the need for law-keeping for salvation. And so he says, you have the Jews who had all these things going for them, and they pursued a righteousness through this law that God had given them. And you had the Gentiles who were basically living for themselves, worshiping false gods, not pursuing a righteousness at all. And Paul says, the Jews have not attained this righteousness because they attain it by works of the law, but the Gentiles have attained this righteousness through faith. And so we see that it's not based on law-keeping. It's not based on how good of a performance we do to try to make God love us or accept us. It's based on what Christ has done on our behalf. The second truth that we see is that salvation has been brought near and made available in Christ, which is really similar to point one, but it's a little twist. It says, stop trying to live like Christ lived for salvation because by faith you have it now. Christ lived the perfect life of obedience, perfect righteousness in this life on our account. Where we have failed, Christ has not. Where we have disobeyed, Christ has obeyed perfectly. And so when we place our faith in him, his righteousness is then accounted to us. And Paul says that this has been brought to us in him. And those who are trusting in Christ have this salvation right now. And then the last point we saw, we looked at Paul and the deep love that he had for the Jews to be saved. And we said, deeply love and pray for those ignorant of the salvation uh, from God. Those who are seeking to attain a righteousness by their works. May we love them deeply and pray for them. And those who are not pursuing a righteousness at all, may we love them deeply and pray for God to save them as well. So, A brief recap of last week. If you want to get all of that, just check out our podcast. Um, But this morning, we're going to continue looking at the last three truths. So let me read the text for you. We are in Romans chapter 10. And I'm going to start at verse 5. 
and go through 17. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So our first point that we see this morning is that is how does an unbeliever become a Christian? Or how does this salvation come to us? It's confess and believe. That's what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. Um, just as we are looking at last week, he says, it's not based on your merit. It's not based on your works. You having to try to keep all of these laws and do all these things or stay away from these other things. But it's confess and believe. Christ has done the work. So salvation is near you. It is not far off or unattainable. It has been brought near in Christ. Jesus has already done the work. So, verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. So there are two aspects of salvation that we see here. And this first one is a confession that Jesus is Lord. And so, this is not just a mere uh, saying of words like, Okay, Jesus is Lord, so I'm good. Um, this is an expression of the trust, an expression of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ for your righteousness. It's a confession that Jesus is your hope for salvation because he is God. And so that comes into, we see this from saying that Jesus is Lord. So it's confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so this idea, the word Lord here could mean one of three things. It could just be a a polite way of showing respect, like sir, or it could be a, maybe a little bit higher of, hey, you're, you're my master, I'm your servant, or this idea that he is God. And so surely Paul is saying here that Jesus is not just worthy of a little bit of respect, or yes, I'm your servant, and so I'll call you Lord, but no, you are my God, I am yours, you created me, everything I am, you are my God. And even in Romans 9, 5, Paul says, The Christ who was God over all, blessed forever. And so it's this idea that we don't just say Jesus is Lord and then continue living a life for ourselves as if we are still on the throne of our heart, doing as we please and rebelling against God, but confessing, you are God and you have the right to do with me as you please and what you say I will do. And it gets down a little bit further that he isn't just a Lord of everything, but he is your Lord. He is 
my Lord, and I'm putting my confidence in you alone because only you can save. I see that I cannot keep the law, that it's a dead end. The Jews, the Israelites' history tells me that you, you reveal that to me in your word. But I put my confidence in you, Jesus, because you have done the work for me. Um, this confession is huge. It's not just, yeah, sure, that's easy to do, but we know that it's the work of the Spirit. It's not just something we decide one day on our own that, yes, we'll start following Jesus. God works in our hearts to bring us to that point, to reveal his glory, to reveal our sin, to reveal what Christ has done on our behalf and the, the salvation that is found in him. So that's the first aspect of salvation, that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, and he reigns over everything, and he reigns in my life. And the second aspect is the resurrection. In verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so believing in our heart is not just an intellectual acknowledgement that, yes, Jesus died, he lived, and sure, yeah, I believe he, he rose from the grave. But this is, Jesus is risen, and because of that, all my hope is in him. I'm actively trusting in him for my right standing with God. Now, Paul, focusing on the resurrection here, does not minimize his life and death. In actu- actuality, it uh, implies his death. If you rose, then you had to have died, and if you died, then you had to have lived. So, in essence, Paul is saying that all of this is founded on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and what he has done for us. And this is huge. Why is the resurrection so big? Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And we are, of all people, most to be pitied because we have banked our hope on what Jesus died, but he's not in the grave anymore. He is alive. He has defeated death. And in his resurrection... He has shown, the Father has shown that the work is completed, that he was pleased to accept the sacrifice, the life and death of Jesus on our behalf, and he will give life to all who place their faith in him. Notice in verses 9 and 10 how Paul begins with confession. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and at the end of verse 10 it says, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then in the middle of that uh, is faith. He says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In the beginning of verse 10, he says, with the heart one believes and is justified. And so it's this idea that, as one commentator points out, that faith is hidden, is the hidden act by which the apparent act of confession is seen. So Paul is saying, if there is genuine faith in you, then it will result in confession, giving evidence of God's work of salvation. This isn't a work done to earn salvation, which we'll look at, but it's evidence of it. And Paul is defending against this idea that righteousness or salvation, right standing with God, is by works apart from faith in Christ. And he is also defending against, or yeah, he's defending against that idea that righteousness is by works apart from faith in Christ. And he is defending against the idea that faith is unseen or unfruitful. He says faith and confession of Christ's lordship, the gospel, go hand in hand. Um, One commentator speaking to the objection that one can have a secret faith and that confession is unnecessary, says it is extremely childishly silly and trivial to say that there is fire when there is neither flame nor heat. So he's saying here, okay, how do we know when, when there's a fire? When we see the flame 
and we feel the heat, right? We don't have to like jump into it to say, okay, is it really a fire here? As we get closer, we'll start to feel the heat. Uh, And he's saying the same thing, that you can't say you have faith if there is no confession of that faith, if there is no evidence of that faith. And so um, another commentator says, that confession is the chief work of faith. So you have this idea that this, this faith within you is resulting in this confession with your lips, that Jesus is Lord and that he reigns. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our wisdom or our ancestry, our mom or our dad. It's based on Jesus. It's not based on how good of a rule follower we are because we can't change our hearts, and that's the problem. It's not just, hey, don't do these things. God was saying don't do these things to show us that you can't do these things, and there's a deeper issue there of your heart and how Christ came to deal with our hearts. And so you may be saying, all right, um, I understand you're saying that faith, salvation is uh, not a work, but it's based on the grace of God, but are not confession and faith works done for salvation? Let's look at this together. Um, You are actively trusting in Christ. You personally are placing your faith in Christ, and you personally and actively are confessing him as Lord. But I submit to you that these are not works done by you for salvation. So let's look at this together. Um, Your confession and belief are not absorbing the wrath of God for your sin. Jesus has done that on the cross. Jesus absorbed the wrath for your sin, for my sin on the cross. Jesus' life, the life that he lived, the perfect life of righteousness, and his resurrection is what brings us righteousness. Not my faith and confession making me live a righteous life. Jesus, his life, has brought righteousness to me. And so our confession and our faith, our works of God in us, embracing this salvation that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at this backed up by Scripture a little bit. Um, In regards to confession being a work of God, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3 say, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So in that, we see this confession that Jesus is God, that he reigns, and he is my Lord, is a work of God in us. And then the faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we see in that our faith is a gift from God as well. And it's all the work of God in us. So what does this mean for us this morning? Well, there are two, two big things that we can get from these verses. Are you trusting in, in Christ alone and confessing him as your God for your salvation? Or are you depending on your work and your merit and your effort? Are you trying to work your way to God? Or are you banking your hope in Jesus? Works is a dead end. There is no righteousness in them. 
because it doesn't transform our hearts. We, our hearts aren't transformed to love God. If you are not trusting in Jesus this morning, our deepest desire, my deepest desire for you is that you would turn and trust in him and what he has done for you on the cross in his life and his death and his resurrection. Maybe this morning you have done that and you are actively trusting in Christ for your salvation. Um, looking at verse 9 again, it says, Jesus is Lord. And so this is a call to lifestyle worship. It's not just we confess this, we pray a prayer, and then our lives continue in the same way they were before Christ. But now Jesus reigns in me. Jesus is my master now. I'm not my own. I used to be on the throne of my heart, but now Jesus is on the throne of my heart. And so everything I do is to be done to him and for his glory because he is my God. So that means the way I work, the way I speak to and about others, the way I love my spouse, or the way I love my children, or the way I eat and drink, how I use my money, how I use my time, is now under this lordship of Jesus. My life, everything I am, everything I do, is for him and for his glory. It's not me. And so I don't just come and say, yes, I pray and trust in Jesus, and I'll continue my way because I'm good. But I will pursue a life where continually I'm surrendering, continually I'm repenting of the areas where I am on the throne of my heart, where I am living for myself. Because we want to live this way now, because God has saved us. He has saved us for this purpose to worship Him. So, our first point how does someone become a believer? Confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in him, his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. Continuing in verse 11, it says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, the, sec- the fifth point that we see is salvation is available to Ensure for all who call on the name of the Lord. Paul in verse 11 refers back to chapter 9, verse 33, which refers back to Isaiah 28. And in this, he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In verse 11 of chapter 10, Paul says, he changes the word there, that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this idea, if your faith is in Christ and what he's done, then this shame that was upon you, the wrath of God, that it rests on you because of your sin has been poured out on Christ. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has endured the wrath of God for us. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Paul says. So we see the salvation is available to all not just the Jews and not just the non-Jews, but it's available to both. So let's review what that looks like for a second. The Jews, we looked at last week, were God's chosen people. They, were, they had the family history of faith. Um, from them descended Christ. And 
according to the flesh, and they were a very moral people. And, and as we saw last week, they were seeking to attain a righteousness through law-keeping. And God's, and Paul says that they are only saved through faith in Christ. And the same goes for the Greeks or non-Jews, the Gentiles, that they were living for themselves. They weren't pursuing a righteousness. They were worshiping false gods, doing whatever they wanted, when they wanted, however they wanted. And Paul says they are saved the same way, through faith in Christ. There's no distinction. Your only hope, Jew or Gentile, is Jesus. Put your faith in him. Rest in him and what he's done. And he even goes further. Um, the same Lord is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of, over all peoples and bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So not to confuse this with like, okay, if I trust Jesus, I'm going to get rich and everything's going to be perfect. No, Paul's not talking about earthly temporal pleasures. But he's talking about the eternal riches of salvation found in Jesus Christ. This is not a promise of an easy life that if you come to Christ, You'll no longer suffer. You will no longer get sick. Your children won't die. Your house won't burn down. People won't persecute you. Everything will be great. No, this is a promise that if you come to Jesus, no matter if that happens, Jesus is enough and he will be your portion. You have eternal riches in Christ, spiritual riches that God pours out. He lavishes he gives in an abundant, overflowing manner to you his grace and mercy if you call on him. Not just enough to get by, but he overwhelms with grace and mercy. And Paul says in Ephesians 1.3 that God blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So not just freedom from guilt, not just freedom from condemnation or wrath, but as we'll see in this quote, that ultimately it's God himself. John Piper says, The ultimate riches of God are, as Romans 9.33 says, the riches of his glory. God's riches are the riches of seeing him and knowing him, admiring him and enjoying him forever. He himself is the sum of the riches that we have in Christ. Paul counts everything as lost because of their surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, the very image of God. And so in these riches that God gives to us, yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, there's no more condemnation. Yes, there's no more wrath. Yes, there is righteousness. Yes, there is holiness. But at the sum of it all is God himself giving himself to us, revealing himself to us in Christ. And we get to experience him and have the knowledge of him, and have fellowship and communion with him. Through Christ, what was lost in our rebellion is restored. We are brought back to life. Restoration happens to God himself. He is the final good, the final goal of salvation. And so, if we live missing Jesus, we live missing the point of everything. If Jesus is not your Lord, then you are wasting your life. You're missing the point of it all. Would you come to him this morning? Look at verse 13. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This comes from Joel 2.32. And in chapter 2, God speaks of this coming and impending judgment and wrath that is coming upon his people. He says, 
but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, saved from wrath and destruction. But not just that, but that we are brought into life and goodness and restoration into a land of the living. And Paul is saying that the same is true for the Jews and for the Gentiles. It doesn't matter your background, whether you've been pursuing a religion that would lead you to God, or you've been pursuing no religion, living for yourself, that salvation is offered in Christ. The wrath of God is coming on all mankind because of our willful rejection of God and our rebellion against him. But the beautiful, glorious truth here is that everyone, Jew and Gentile, who calls on the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for deliverance will not only be delivered from death, but brought into life, given righteousness, enjoying God. And so notice here in verse 9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul is exalting Jesus and saying, he is God. He is worthy of your worship. He is your only hope for deliverance. Trust in him, Jew, Gentile, religious, non-religious person. Put your hope in him. Let me just take a side note and uh, just share a little something about verse 13. Uh, It's a very special verse for me. Um, I grew up in a Christian home with parents who who are who love God, who sought to raise me in the ways of God. I was, um, I was involved in our church, and it was a good church that preached the gospel. And I did all of the outwardly religious things. So I read my Bible, I prayed. Even even at a young age, as a teenager, um, I was doing these things. I was baptized. I was t- I tithed. I memorized scripture. I sang in the church choir. I was in the kids program. I was in the youth group and a leader in the youth group. Um, But I had no peace. I had no assurance. I had no confidence of salvation. And the reason why is, though I didn't realize it, I was ultimately doing these things to try to earn God's favor, to try to get him to accept me, to try to get him to love me. Like, okay, did I do enough? Or I I did this thing so God loves me, and then I sinned so God doesn't love me, and so am I saved or am I not? And I had no peace. I had no assurance. And the summer after I graduated high school, which is not this summer, um, but was actually a while ago, um, I, uh, I got to go to a camp with our church. It was a youth camp. And about halfway through the week, um, God just brought me to this point where it's like, you know, I had talked to people before about it, and my heart just had not been made alive in Christ, and I had no assurance. And um, so I talked to this guy, our counsel, my counselor, and, and just shared with him the struggle I was having with assurance of salvation. And though we didn't necessarily go into all the, the details of my life or the sin that ruled me, um, he showed me verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God used that verse to show me I can put my confidence fully in what God, who God is and what he has done for me. And though I didn't understand all the depths of the gospel and still don't and still growing, God used that verse to awaken my my heart to Christ. And he saved me that day. And now I can have complete confidence in what Jesus has done for me 
in his life, death, and resurrection. And that alone is my basis for my right standing with God. And, And so this morning, I would plead with you, this salvation is available. It is sure if you call on him. You don't have to live for trying to earn God's favor or in the turmoil of back and forth. You can rest sure in what Christ has done. Just call on him. Surrender to him. Confess him as your Lord this morning. If you are in Christ, let's just take a moment and think about this. Are you living cast down and defeated, not realizing and living in the riches of God's grace given to you in Christ? Enjoy him. Rest in him. Delight yourself in him this morning. The rivers of life and of grace and mercy are flowing through Jesus to you. Would you put yourself under the fountain of his grace and mercy and just let it wash over you. Enjoy him. Delight yourself in him. And like I said at the beginning, maybe this morning hasn't been great for you, but this week has been rough. Just delight yourself in the Lord. Turn to him. He is your hope this morning. Lastly, the last point we see comes from 13 through 17, and it's that God's plan to spread this gospel of salvation is his people's proclamation of the gospel. So, picking up verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So we have this glorious promise, as we just looked at in the previous verses, that salvation is made available to all, Jew and non-Jew. And it's available to all who call on the Lord to save. But people will not call on him unless his messengers are faithful and obedient to to the command that God has given to his church to go and make disciples of all nations. That is our sending as his body, as his redeemed people. One commentator says, So the entire source and origin of salvation rests on this, that God sends out someone, a true minister of the word. See, if a false gospel or false message is preached, or if the true message is neglected and is not preached, then people will be led to believe lies, to believe that maybe there is no God. And what I do doesn't really matter because I'm the sum of my existence and the whole world revolves around me. And when I'm I'm dead, that's it. Or for people that are working tirelessly, trying to earn God's favor, they will be be led to believe lies unless the true ministers of the gospel speak it. And Jesus is the truest minister of the word. He is the word made flesh which came to redeem the brokenness and restore us back to God. Not only to preach the message, but to enable the message, to embody the message, to bring it about 
where you and I don't, and where we don't live out the message in the sense that we are enduring, bearing the wrath of God, and that we are giving righteousness to people Christ has, but we get to partake in what he has come to do. If you look, going in the reverse order of these verses, um, even starting in verse 17, it says, hearing comes through the word of Christ, and then jump down to 15. Um, we are sent to preach so that people can hear, so that people can believe and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This is God's design for his church, his redeemed people. May we be obedient to the mission he has given us. We must be obedient. In Ephesians 3, God says that as the church, we are his design to reveal his perfect wisdom to redeem and restore a broken world back to himself. We aren't the ones redeeming. We aren't the ones restoring, but we are the ones carrying this message to reveal the plan that God has to redeem and restore a broken world back to himself. God has placed you, he's placed me at our exact homes, where we live, where we work, in classrooms with our specific teachers, with that person who sits right next to you, with the people in your exact family for being ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of God who proclaim this gospel. So may we be faithful and obedient because God is worthy. Oh, that that God would use you, that God would use me to spread his gospel and transform the city of Rock Hill, Fort Mill, this county of York and our state, this nation and this world. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and it will transform. We just get to speak it. But look at verse 16. Actually, look at verse 15 here. Um, It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In Isaiah 52, the Israelites were in captivity. And just imagine the people coming to proclaim to them, going over mountain, over mountain, days of journeying to them to say, your God reigns, you are in captivity, but he is still on his throne. He is coming to restore you back to where he has for you to be. You are not dead You are not hopeless. Your God reigns. And so the same idea here is that we get to be people who bring this gospel message that you don't have to stay dead in your sins. Jesus came. He lived. He died on your behalf, bearing the sin that you deserve, bearing the sin that I deserve, and put an end to it, or the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And he paid the price in full. And his resurrection shows that. We get to be people who herald that truth. And maybe we, uh, we don't have 20 minutes to have a conversation where we go into all the gospel, but snippets here. May we speak a truth of the gospel here. May we speak a truth of the gospel there. As we have conversations, may we seek to demonstrate it with our lives, laying down our lives for the good of others instead of ourselves and demonstrating what Christ has done for us. But notice in verse 16, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Not everyone obeys the gospel and trusts the gospel when we proclaim it, right? There were times when I didn't obey or trust the gospel, 
and it was proclaimed to me for many, 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 many years. But we are to continue to obey the mission God has given to us. This mission to not save, but this mission to spread the gospel and teach the gospel to people. Make disciples and let God do the work. May we not stop proclaiming the message because we face opposition or because we don't see fruit. But may may we continue to labor side by side for the glory of God and the joy of others in him as a body of believers, as a body here at Remedy. And may we take heart at verse 17 that the power is found in the message and not in the delivery or our personality or our ability to convince, but it's grounded on the word of Christ. The gospel is truly powerful to save. And so, uh, a question here is, do you have beautiful feet? Are you taking the gospel, the good news to people? This, this summer, uh, there's some people from this church, at least one, maybe more. Actually, there's a couple. Um, and people from Winthrop connected with the BCM there that are in, across the world, in, in the, just across the world. Um, spreading the gospel, maybe to people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And they, are, they have beautiful feet, not because their feet are all clean or because they have nail polish on them and they're all manicured, but because they are bringing this message of what God has done for the peoples, for all peoples in Christ. The video that played before the sermon was, we exist to glorify God by calling all peoples into fellowship with him and with one another through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so, though they are on the other side of the world doing this, you and I have the opportunity to have beautiful feet as we take the gospel to our neighbors, as we take the gospel to our family members, as we take the gospel and speak it with our words and seek to demonstrate it with our lives to point them to their hope in Christ. And as we engage in God's mission to do this, he will reveal the depths of his grace and the depths of his mercy and his love and his kindness and his power and ultimately the depths of himself to us more fully. So let's jump in together. May we covenant together as a people, as a body, that we want to take the gospel to our city. That uh, when we fail, we don't say, oh, God doesn't love me anymore. No, God loves me because not because I preach the gospel and God loves, doesn't love, doesn't not love me because I don't preach the gospel. God loves me because of what Jesus has done on my behalf, because of my faith, because he is God and he accepts me because of what Jesus has done. Oh, and this past Friday, just really challenged with this idea of our uh, American culture of ease and comfort and prosperity. Um, And I just want to make a note here that taking the gospel to those who haven't heard is a rock of offense. The message we carry is a rock of offense to people. As we look in Matthew or Romans 9, 33, 
Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The message is offensive because it tells us you're not good. There's nothing in you that God should desire you. There's nothing in you that God would love you or come to you. But you know what? The beautiful message is that God has come to you in your helplessness, in your death. God has come to you in Christ to make you alive. And unless God's, like we said last week, unless God's spirit comes and opens our eyes to see that and to glory in that and to trust Jesus, then it's a rock of offense. And so we won't always be met with acceptance. We won't always be met with fruit. We won't always be met with people saying, yes, Jesus is Lord. But we might be met with some resistance, some opposition. Physically, we will be met spiritually with opposition. Um, Let me just read a few texts about suffering. It says, 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Matthew 10, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul or the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? And lastly, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see here this call that God is is speaking to you and to me is not follow Jesus and your life will be easy. Follow Jesus and your life will be perfect. You'll no longer get sick. That you won't suffer. But God is saying, despite the suffering that you experience, despite the opposition, maybe when our team went to Columbia back in March, they, op- they welcomed us. Even people who were not believers opened their homes. They let us come and sit. They, they, uh, they just made us feel welcome. They listened to what we had to say. And that was a glorious opportunity and the grace of God to do that. But, guess, but know that that will not always be the case. We might not be met with open hands in an open home, but rather with closed hands and hard hearts. It might be clubs and knives and guns and fists and stones. But Jesus says, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your opposition, I am enough. I am worthy. And I confess that in my heart, I feel the pool of sin in me to say, I want comfort. I want ease. I don't want sickness. I don't want death. But I know that God is enough and I want to reject all of that and say, even if that doesn't happen, Jesus, you are worthy. You are enough in my suffering that this life is not the end. You are the end. And one day I'll be with you and people, souls are at stake and they're worth it. Your glory is worth it. And I want to labor to that end. I want to reject the pool of ease and comfort. And I want to say, yes, wherever you send me, God, whatever you want for me, whatever the cost, you are worth it. 
So I just end this morning with exhorting you who are trusting in Jesus to say, reject the pool of this world. Reject the teaching that would say, it's about my comfort, it's about my ease. When God is saying, if you want to follow me, I'm going to the cross. Let's go. Um, let's, Let's exhort one another continually to press on to Christ no matter the cost. And maybe but God is pressed in on an area of your life where he's revealing, hey, you are living for yourself here. You're not. You are on your throne in this area. Repent and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Now, maybe this morning, you, sh- you just want to pray that God would help you have beautiful feet, taking the gospel to those in captivity. Maybe this morning you're like, I'm living for myself, not pursuing a righteousness at all, doing what I want. Um, I'm the Lord of my life. Or, on the flip side, you are pursuing a religion and works that would lead to God accepting you. Both states, we plead with you, would you turn to Christ, turn away from those from those works or turn away from the works for yourself worshiping yourself and worship Jesus repent confess him as Lord believe in his life death and resurrection on your behalf for your salvation and wherever you are trust in Christ enjoy the riches of his grace enjoy him this morning because he is good he is what our souls were made for he is the end of all things let's not miss the goal of the law which is Jesus this morning let me pray for us and uh, you know if God pressed in on your heart something and you want to talk through it more feel free to come grab me or talk to Fudd who did the welcome um, or someone you came with just grab them say hey let's process this together we're going to respond in worship through song and giving and then um, a baptism, seeing what God has done in the life of Caleb and hearing of his story of salvation. So let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship together. God, we, we praise you because you are Lord, because you're God and you're worthy of it. And Jesus, we praise you because you are Lord. I pray that our hearts would count you as more worthy than ease and comfort and health and wealth that we would willingly endure suffering for the sake of your name for the sake of the joy of peoples in Christ that you would use us to take the gospel to our neighbors that you would open opportunities this week that we would see salvation come by the power of your gospel and even this morning God that you would awaken souls that you would justify sinners and make them your children even in our midst this morning would you encourage your people would you strengthen us would you turn our hearts to you to worship you with our lives for the glory of your name in Jesus name